We heard from a number of different countries yesterday. I'd say Australia went the furthest in the situation, saying that they'd raise this with senior levels of the Indian government. But critically, both the UK and the US had basically just said, look, we've been in contact with our Canadian allies and we want to have an investigation into this, but haven't said that they raised it with the Indians. And we heard Joe Biden's speech yesterday at the UN where he discussed the idea of actually stronger ties with India. He talked about that through the Quad, which is kind of a security and economic dialogue that the U.S. has with India, Australia and Japan. That's Global's Mackenzie Gray, who is in New York, which is where Canada's prime minister is. Justin Trudeau was speaking earlier today at uh, this U.N. climate summit. Uh, but uh, his trip to, to New York, certainly, I think, a large shadow being cast by what he himself revealed earlier this week, the announcement from the prime minister in the House of Commons Monday, uh, that his government is in possession of compelling intelligence linking India to the assassination of a Sikh separatist leader in Surrey, B.C. in June of this year. Uh, Somebody who was a Canadian citizen, as confirmed by the government. Now, here's the problem. Look, obviously, the government has this information. The government can confirm whether somebody is or isn't a citizen. Mark Miller is the immigration minister, uh, and they really kind of botched even this. So yesterday, uh, Mark Miller had tweeted that Hardeep Singh Nijar had become a Canadian citizen on March 3rd, 2015. Today, Mark Miller tweeted that actually Mr. Nijar became a Canadian citizen on May 25th, 2007. Uh, So that's a big gap between those two dates. Again, the government would know, they would have that information on whether or not somebody was a Canadian citizen. But if you're trying to dispel rumors or myths... Uh, You know, get your story straight first. So that was a little awkward. But nonetheless, you know, if this is true, uh, this is a pretty serious uh, act of aggression by India. The idea that you would assassinate uh, somebody on Canadian soil, uh, that that begs a response. But are we getting that kind of response from allies? So there's some uh, geopolitical awkwardness here for Canada. uh, That's some tepid support from our allies, but not, I think, what the prime minister was hoping for. So that's going to be something to navigate here. But there is that question about this credible evidence. Now, what is this evidence telling us? Where did it come from? Are Canadians going to get to see all of this evidence? Global's Nathaniel Dove has been exploring that side of the story. It was a bombshell. Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen. An intelligence expert says, if true, it shows countries are taking more risks. What we are seeing that's new is increasing levels of overt covert interference, or at least countries that are willing to sort of step out of the shadows. Former CSIS analyst Jessica Davis says the alleged murder of a Canadian citizen by Indian government agents on Canadian soil would be unprecedented. India called it absurd. But it would be far from the first country to operate covertly on Canadian soil. Canadian intelligence agents have briefed the government over alleged Chinese attempts to interfere in elections, and members of Chinese and Iranian diasporas have claimed those governments are intimidating them, making threatening phone calls or arresting family still in those countries. Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc raised the specter Monday of probing India as part of a foreign interference public inquiry. This professor says the threat of covert activities isn't going away. Those activists do have reach back and can reach back into their own communities and can shape Canadian policy with respect to those governments. 
Davis says a foreign agent registry would be a good first step. The government has promised one. And while Parliament resumed on Monday, the Liberals have not given a timeline. But I don't think our actions are ever going to deter foreign states from trying to engage in foreign interference. It's just, can we manage it better? Can we protect those communities and protect our democratic institutions better? As questions remain, both experts say Canada's security agencies need a boost to keep Canadians safe. Nathaniel Dove, Global News. All right, so joining us for more on this story, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Neil Bisson, a director of Global Intelligence Knowledge Network, former intelligence officer with 20 years of national security and intelligence experience with CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Neil, so good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. I mean, first of all, you know, I think we were all shocked by this, this revelation. I mean, from, from your perspective and your background, I mean, what was your reaction, first of all, when you heard about this? I think like most other people, I was actually shocked to see the Prime Minister uh, mention these accusations in uh, Parliament. But um, after reflecting on it, uh, seeing how the cold reception that he received while he was in India, it uh, kind of all came together. Well, and, yeah, it was interesting timing. I mean, part of it maybe was dictated by uh, the fact that the Globe and Mail had uh, the scoop on the story. They published, uh, I think, early uh, Monday afternoon. Maybe that forced the prime minister's hand a little bit. But, I mean, what do you think it takes or would take for, you know, a prime minister to, to go public, to rise in the House of Commons to talk about something like this? What, what kind of an intelligent threshold would there have to be? Well, uh, I think that if you take a look at it just from the implications, the far-reaching implications for the Prime Minister of Canada, both economically and politically, to make this type of comment in the House of Parliament uh, leads me to believe that the information that he is dealing with has to have a certain level of credibility to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the stakes are high with this kind of an allegation against a foreign state and the allegation that they would have engaged in this kind of state sponsored assassination of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. It's pretty serious allegation. Exactly. Uh, I don't know if I, it would be considered unprecedented, but uh, to make this type of an allegation uh, against another government, which Canada has a typically a pretty friendly relationship with and has been trying to uh, basically get better economic uh, relations with uh, definitely indicates that the information that's uh, been provided by the Canadian intelligence community has uh, substantial weight and, as I had mentioned before, credibility. There is the challenge now, uh, you know, now that this allegation is out there, you know, the, the Canadians want to better understand this. And I think, you know, maybe from a global perspective, even other countries watching all of this to see, well, what, what proof exactly does the Canadian government have? Uh, we get into matters uh, of security and, and secrecy around some of this intelligence, but is it is it possible that there's uh, a, an ability to disclose some of this or, or most of this publicly? I think at this point in time, since the Prime Minister has mentioned it in Parliament, that uh, there is the expectation that the information will be coming out now, when it comes out and how much will be coming out, uh, I think that's, uh, that's up for debate at this point in time. But uh, even if you take a look at some of the other instances where state-sponsored assassinations or attempts uh, have happened abroad, uh, take, for example, Stripple, who uh, in Salisbury was uh, basically attacked with uh, Novichuk. Uh, this leads you to believe that uh, it took a while from the amount of time that the British government made the accusations against the Russian government 
until the actual information came out showing who was involved and how they were involved in that uh, assassination attempt. I believe uh, the Canadian government uh, will probably be doing something very similar. They want to make sure that all their ducks are in a row and that the information that they have and that they can present does not jeopardize either the technical sources, uh, the signals intelligence, or any of the technical sources that they use to uh, bring in the bigger picture. Right, because it sounds like maybe this this was born of of an ongoing intelligence operation, and you got to think, you know, from CSIS's perspective, the the challenge they face, both in terms of trying to keep tabs on Sikh extremists, and and there are two groups in Canada that are banned terrorist organizations that are linked to the uh, to the Khalistan separatist movement, but also you know the foreign interference and and what activities India's intelligence agency might be involved in. That, that's a lot for them to monitor. And again, as I say, that these are probably ongoing efforts. Exactly. I mean, you're looking at uh, homeland issues that are being dealt with by uh, diaspora from different countries. And unfortunately, one of the uh, side effects of Canada being such a great country to immigrate to is that uh, they're going to have uh, individuals and groups that are looking to uh, continue with their own homeland issues and to, unfortunately, sometimes the detriment of the relationships in Canada and uh, also, uh, different governments looking at it from a perspective of Canada harboring things that could cause them damage back in their own countries. There's an interesting dynamic to this case because, of course, this was a murder, and, and it, it was and, and still is, I guess, uh, RCMP jurisdiction. But uh, now that we've got some national security implications here, now we've got some CSIS involvement. And maybe part of what CSIS has, has discerned about this case has come from the police investigation. But are, are they likely working together on this, or what is the protocol for working together on something like this? I think more than likely there is a lot of collaboration, a lot of cooperation happening right now because, as I had mentioned before, this is the opportunity for the government of Canada to basically demonstrate that these accusations have substance and whether they came directly from the murder investigation or whether there was simultaneously an investigation going on by the the service, um, these two incidences at one way or another have merged. Yeah, they certainly have. So where, where do you th- think this all, all goes from here now? Well, I think at this point in time, uh, uh, the Canadian intelligence community will continue to be focusing on what that threat means, what that all involves. And I also believe that uh, the sick community is going to be looking at this as, um, is there a chance of more endangerment? Um, what else is happening here? Uh, so I believe over the next few weeks, maybe the next month, uh, the government is going to do as much as they possibly can to provide further information and further evidence to show the connection between the Indian government and the murder of Mr. Najir. And at the same time, this will also likely escalate whatever investigations are currently happening. We'll see what comes in the days and weeks here, Neil. Really appreciate your insight and uh, your perspective on all this. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. And thank you very much, Rob, for having me on. Okay, there you go. Neil Bisson, a director of Global Intelligence Knowledge Network, former intelligence officer, 20 years uh, with CSIS. So his thoughts on the intelligence side of all of this, and, and it's interesting because it's a different kind of threshold. And we saw the same thing with the Chinese interference story, uh, that you make a compelling case based on what you've been able to gather, and you present it to political leaders, and you expect them to take some action. But it's different than building a case against somebody. 
right? Like we know about Chinese interference efforts uh, based on everything that was gathered, based on everything that's come to light. It, it, it doesn't require us to have to arrest and convict somebody, right? It's, it's a different matter. So I know this has come up that, look, well, if Canada knows who did this, and why haven't they arrested anybody who, who pulled the trigger, right? So, you know, there's a different kind of threshold for what the RCMP have to do in terms of investigating and laying charges in a criminal investigation versus CSIS uh, trying to figure out what foreign governments or extremist groups are up to on Canadian soil. But look, at the end of the day, you know, the prime minister has made a pretty explosive claim. And there's going to have to be something presented. And the other side, look, if the prime minister were just making this up or exaggerating this, you know, we've seen leaks to the media from CSIS before, CSIS officials who have been frustrated maybe with how these matters have been handled. Do you really think they'd all stand by idly and allow all of this to be politicized? The prime minister is looking for a distraction or something? I don't, I don't think so. The Arrow One, Canada's first supersonic fighter plane, is ready to fly after five years of work and planning by 5,000 people at Avro of Canada near Toronto. Now, $200 million and 17,000 blueprints later, the plane taxis out for flight testing with Chief uh, Test Pilot Jan Zurakowski at the controls. So there it was, 1958, the maiden flight of the Avro Aero, Canada's public broadcaster covering the occasion. Uh, fast forward a year later, though, the Avro Aero was cancelled. So why? That's been a, a lingering question in this country really ever since. And for a lot of Canadians who weren't even born when the Avro Aero was developed or cancelled, it's something that people still have strong opinions on. And part of the perception here, and, and this is when Canada's emerging in, in the post-war world, trying to maybe emerge from the uh, American shadow, the idea that we could have developed our own high-tech uh, fighter jet interceptor plane, uh, that would have been quite something. And then the idea maybe that we had to quash it because the Americans were, were jealous or felt threatened by it, uh, you know, that really tugs at, at the patriotic heartstrings. But what was the real story? Why did we abandon the Avro era? Like I say, that question has kind of haunted Canadians really ever since. Well, a new report is, is out, and this is based on some uh, declassified documents that, that help to, I, I guess, shed some light on what happened here. Like, it's taken a long time to get to this point, but do we now have a clear answer? It's a new uh, report published this week in the peer-reviewed academic journal, it's, uh, Canadian Military History. The report's called Arrows, Bears, and Secrets, the Role of Intelligence in Decisions on the CF-105 Program. Well, joining us uh, to talk more about it is the uh, co-author of that report, Alan Barnes, a former member of the Intelligence Assessment Secretary to the Privy Council Office, currently a senior fellow with the Center for Security, Intelligence, and Defense studies Carleton University. Alan, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, first of all, I mean, how do you describe or, and how do you explain why there's been all this fascination over all of these years uh, around the Avro Arrow? Uh, well, there's probably quite a few reasons. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not one of the uh, sort of Arrow fans, but I came to this sort of in a different direction, but I can certainly see what the attraction is uh, mm -hmm. with the Arrow. It was a beautiful plane. It, it held out some prospects for major advances in Canadian aeronautical engineering and so on. Uh, so it's not surprising that many people were disappointed when it, when it didn't go forward. 
so what, what's the context of, of this time period? What was going on at the time? Uh, what, what do we need to know about the backdrop to when all these decisions are being made? Yes, well, uh, this was the early Cold War, uh, the 50s when, uh, when the arrow was being contemplated and first, uh, first steps were taken, uh, was the, the bomber gap period when uh, Americans in particular, but North Americans generally were concerned that uh, Soviet uh, bombers would, would be an imminent threat and so on. Uh, so it's not surprising that in that kind of Cold War atmosphere, uh, there was concerns about that bomber threat and Canada's determination to, to play its role in countering it. So let's talk about the report that you've published this week. So now after all of these years, um, some documents that have previously been classified are now accessible. So what, what light do they shed on the decisions and, and the intelligence that was being presented and the decisions that resulted from that intelligence? Yes, well, that is uh, considerable uh, information, and it is substantially new. So I think it provides a much uh, clearer picture of the of the overall situation. So uh, there were many reasons, of course, why the Avro Arrow was cancelled, and I think the most important one was the the financial aspects. It was just getting so expensive of taking up so much of the uh, defense budget that it just wasn't sustainable. But beyond that, as my research has shown, uh, there was very clear uh, assessments by Canadian intelligence to say that the, the threat, the Soviet threat during that period was changing substantially, and the implication of that was that the Avril Arrow uh, would be less effective in, in dealing with the new threat. What do we make then of, of the role played by U.S. intelligence and, and where Canadian intelligence officers were, were getting that information? I think one of the, the ideas that's been put forward over the years is that maybe Canadian intelligence officials were being misled by e- either intentionally misled or inadvertently misled by poor U.S. intelligence. Yes. In fact, that's one of the many myths that has grown up uh, regarding, regarding Arrow and regarding the role of intelligence, because previously this information just hadn't been available. So historians and, and others sort of latched onto their pet theory and sort of picked facts that, that supported that. Uh, but the reality is the uh, Canadian intelligence at the time, it worked very closely with the U.S. It did receive a great deal of information from the U.S., but uh, Canada had its own capacity to carry out independent intelligence analysis. So Canadian analysts in, the, in government, in the, in the armed forces, uh, took this information and essentially interpreted, uh, attached their own interpretation, their own uh, extrapolation of that information. So both Canada and the U.S. were using the same information, but in fact they came to fairly different conclusions. So the American intelligence at that time, particularly Air Force intelligence, still strongly stressed the uh, the threat from uh, Soviet bombers. But Canada was looking a bit farther down the road, and it, the, the Canadian intelligence analysts at the time recognized that, in fact, the Soviet threat was shifting from bombers to ballistic missiles. So by the early 1960s, Canadian intelligence assessed that the main threat would come from uh, ballistic missiles. So this was, in fact, a little bit before the American intelligence community came to that same conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a, a, a significant difference, and it did have implications for the Avro program, because if the threat was now missiles, uh, the Avro Arrow, you know, even if it, if it 
did live up to its its full potential uh, was really not very effective against that. I mean, it, it isn't effective against a, a ballistic missile threat at all. So the government had to recognize that, you know, continuing to spend that much money on a on a interceptor that wouldn't be effective against the main threat didn't make as much sense as when they first started the program. Right, and even though it seems like things turned on a dime, like it felt like a very sudden cancellation, I, I think this paints a picture of kind of that assessment evolving really almost over a decade then. Exactly. I mean, Canada, Canadian intelligence analysts were looking at the Soviet threat, working with the Americans, uh, obtaining new information. And uh, for much of that period, uh, the Canadian analysts recognized the Soviet threat was more limited than the Americans uh, portrayed it as. So I found that a very interesting aspect of my research to, to show the differences between the Canadian interpretation of the information and the American. Um, but you have to remember that during that period, even previous governments, previous liberal government, uh, was starting to have concerns about the expense uh, of the of the project. Um, and then when the uh, Diefenbaker Conservative government came to power, uh, they were faced with the decision of. of how do you how do you handle the, the program now? So uh, it was a combination of the the expense of the program and the changing intelligence assessment. As it became clearer and clearer, certainly to Canadian intelligence uh, experts, that the the threat was going to be different by the time uh, the Avro ever got into into production. So, I mean, why wasn't Diefenbaker able to talk about this at the time? And maybe that speaks to the question of why this was all classified for all of these decades. What was so sensitive about all of that? Well, that's a very good question, because, in fact, at the time of the announcement, that's one of the main justifications that uh, Prime Minister Diefenbaker put forward. He said that the threat was changing uh, and the, the arrow was not be as effective. And the opposition at the time uh, challenged him on that and said, if that's the case... Uh, you know, show us, uh, show us the evidence, show us why you've reached that conclusion. Mm-hmm. And because of the sensitivity of uh, intelligence at the time, uh, the Diefenbaker government wasn't able to use that uh, to defend itself. But I think now, looking at the record, uh, it does show the Diefenbaker government in, in a better light, uh, in terms of uh, they were ultimately following the advice they received from uh, their military advisors. So, you know, that included the intelligence input uh, to that, so so the uh, the government at the time was following military advice. It did recognize the changing threat, and uh, you know it it stated that in Parliament. But as I said, they couldn't actually back it up with the uh, with the intelligence assessments, and so that left them sort of scrambling. The right. the, the liberals and, and other supporters of the Arrow never really believed them, and that's how all these other. Um, sort of theories came up that the Americans were manipulating the information or, you know, various other uh, myths had been created. Right. There, there was a void, I guess, that those those other explanations kind of filled. So uh, all of these years later, and, and, and I mean, you know, you still had to go looking for this via access to, to information requests. Did, did you kind of have a sense of what it was you were looking for, or uh, how did you end up coming across this? Uh, well, it's part of a much larger research project that I'm involved in, but you're right that the main challenge of dealing with this kind of subject, even 60 years later, is the difficulty of obtaining the information. So I've um, I've started a large quantity of, of access requests dealing with various aspects of uh, Cold War intelligence and so on, uh, and I was able to get a hold of a number of these assessments, and once I started looking at them, 
and comparing the other information available on, on the Avro situation, and particularly uh, cabinet minutes and uh, records from the Chiefs of Staff Committee and so on, I was able to put the intelligence together with the policy discussions that were going on at that time to see how the intelligence fed into the, the final decisions on this. But the, the real challenge in Canada is that there's no mechanism, even today, for the declassification of historic uh, records of this, of this kind. Yeah. So our intelligence allies all have a process, you know, releasing it after 30 years or a particular period of time. But in Canada, that doesn't exist. So even these records that are 60 years old and more, um, you still have to go through the access to information process, which is very cumbersome, and it really was never designed for this sort of uh, historic material. Yeah, that, that should change, right? I mean, we do hear about this sometimes in the United States. You know, here we're coming up on 30 years or 50 years, and a whole bunch of documents are going to be declassified. Like, it's sort of a countdown to a deadline, and it's almost automatic. But as you say, nothing like that exists here, but, but could it? Uh, I certainly hope so. I'm, I'm working very hard with a number of colleagues uh, in this field uh, and with officials in government to try and encourage them to implement a, a proper systematic process for uh, declassification. Uh, so far, it's been pretty much an uphill battle, but we're, we're continuing the fight. But, but the reality is uh, Canadian historians cannot function effectively without some kind of mechanism to de- declassify these records after after a period of time, and I think 30 years is a, is a logical time, by that point, almost any real sensitivity has waned. Mm-hmm. And in any case, I think Canadians do have a right to know how these decisions were reached, uh, especially oh, yeah. after a period of time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, the journal is Canadian Military History. The uh, report, it's called Arrows, Bears, and Secrets, the Role of Intelligence and Decisions on the CF-105 Program. Uh, that is, of course, the Avro Arrow. Alan, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really do appreciate this. It was a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. All the best. There you go. That's Alan Barnes, former member of the Intelligence Assessment Secretariat of the Privy Council Office, uh, currently a senior fellow at the Center for Security, Intelligence, and Defense Studies, Carleton University, uh, author of this report uh, in Canadian military history on the, I guess, you know, the decisions, the, the intelligence that led to the decisions that ultimately led to the end of the Avro Aero program in 1959. A big moment in Canadian history, I think in large part because of just the uh, the fallout from that, the reaction to that, and uh, the, the myths and the legends that have endured over the years. Does that fully answer the question as to why the government decided to end the program? I think it really helps us better understand it. But uh, I don't know if it will satisfy all the doubters or, or all of the questions that still linger. But it is unfortunate that it takes 60 years and an access to information request uh, to, to bring forth a document that sheds some important light on all of this. Like, is that really that top secret that it had to sit there for all of these decades? Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Wednesday afternoon. Much more still to get to. Uh, it's unclear when the next federal election is going to be. And I suppose it could be, well, pretty much any time between now and, and say, two years from now. Uh, polls suggesting uh, that the conservatives are riding high at the moment, maybe even getting close to a majority territory. For all intents and purposes, uh, outside of Quebec anyway, it, it's a three-party race or three-party system. You've got the conservatives, the liberals, and, and you know, to, to some extent, the NDP. Uh, the bloc uh, are a presence uh, certainly in Quebec. 
Now, the People's Party, I think, as we've seen recently, not much of a factor. So just how crowded is the federal political landscape and is there room for another? About a year and a half ago, and this was kind of in the aftermath of the conservative leadership race, uh, there was a new movement born, uh, originally called Centerized Conservatives, uh, later became Centerized Canadians. Uh, worried maybe that uh, the liberals were moving too far to the left and the conservatives were being pulled out, uh, too much to the right, leaving a gap in the middle. So this was a group that emerged kind of as a voice for what they describe as pragmatic, centrist Canadians. Well, that movement has morphed into a party, the Canadian Future Party. So joining us to find out more about uh, this movement, this new party, why they see uh, a void on the political scene. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dominic Cardi, who's an independent MLA in New Brunswick, has served as a cabinet minister uh, in that province and is the interim leader uh, of this new party. Dominic, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. So, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Okay, so talk about how this, this became a movement and now a political party and, and why you believe that this is something that, that Canadian politics needs. Well, I think you, you did a great job of summing up the, the sort of the origin story and it's shifted from being centerized conservatives to centerized Canadians because we heard from lots of uh, liberals and folks in uh, the NDP and even the Greens that they weren't happy with the way their parties were going either, and they just felt that there were far too many just silliness, uh, mm -hmm. silly policies that those parties were pursuing. I mean, the Greens' problems with sort of an anti-Semitic crisis, the, uh, uh, the the Liberals who seem to believe that the only way you can solve a problem is by spending money, the problems with the Conservatives. Uh, you mentioned Max Bernier's party. I think one of the problems there is that in too many cases, the federal Conservative Party has stolen Max Bernier's platform and uh, a little bit of Mr. Trump's from the South. And that's not going to, I don't think, lead us anywhere good. They're asking some good questions. And that's sort of why we think we need this new party, that people who are angry right now, the populists that we were hearing who are dominating our airwaves, they're asking lots of questions about why Canada is not getting the results that it should have, what's happening to the country. My concern is that while the questions are valid, the answers that are being given by the Liberals and the Conservatives are just simply not workable. That the Liberals seem to be living in some sort of 1990s fantasy land where you can just keep on spending more money and roll out pictures of Jean Chrétien every now and again. And that'll make everyone feel warm and fuzzy and not realize that even though we're spending, you know, 40-odd percent of our incomes on taxes, that we can't get in to see a doctor or get our moms, get our mom in to see a, get her hip replaced. That uh, on the other side with the Conservatives, that there's a a certain amount of rage farming going on there where I think the Conservatives have, in terms of just sheer effectiveness, it's been very effective, using online extremism as a way of generating engagement and interest. And that's uh, helped drive Mr. Polyagra up in the polls the same way that it helped drive Mr. Trump up in the polls in the U.S. The fact is, though, that none of those ideas actually work. That saying Canadians are living in a country that's broken is insulting Canadians. Canada is Canadians. That's all it is. You know, the fact that we live in this particular piece of the earth is not what makes Canada Canada. What makes us Canadians is the, the inheritance, the values, the culture that we've all brought to, to the, our experience as citizens. And I think we've got to recognize that and then build some ideas for the future, hence the name of the new party of Canada's future. We want to try and talk about some issues that other parties have completely ignored. Where is the federal, liberal, and conservative commitment to get our defense spending up to 2%? What's our plan to deal with China, a country that our, the chief of our defense staff said in a testimony to the House of Commons last year that Russia and China are at war with the West and with Canada. The problem is, is that Russia and China know that and we don't. 
given what China has said about how they intend to decouple from the democratic world over the course of the next five years, where is our plan to replace all those goods that are currently uh, made in China that we are increasingly dependent on? These are horrible questions because they're going to involve real changes to our economy, to our society, to the way we live our lives. But it would seem to me that it's kind of your responsibility if you're going to be in politics, not just to try and go along with whatever's going to get the most people to click on you online, but to actually have serious solutions to serious problems because we've got a long list of them. Oh, we definitely do. We can talk more about that. Uh, in terms of uh, political party as a vehicle, because as you say, this started off as, as a, more of a movement than a political party per se. Um, why you believe a political party is the way to address it? I mean, you know, there's, there's the history of the conservatives and the liberals at least intended to be more big tent parties. And if even... You know, when when one certain faction, one particular faction within that party seems to have the upper hand, the idea still that, you know, you can work for these ideas or work for for change from within. This is very much working from without. Why why do you see this as the way to go? Well, it's working within the system. And that's we have a representative democratic system where political parties are the ones who get entrusted to run the House of Commons. Whoever has the most seats gets to run the government, usually, depending on coalition deals and all that. Right. So if you want to make, make change, you've got to be in a position to actually vote on those changes in the House. And so the only way, only way you can do that is with a political party. And I think part of the reason why it's necessary now is twofold. So first, we've got the liberals and conservatives who are no longer the big tent parties as they used to be. We did a, a survey earlier this year, a fairly big national poll, and most liberal and conservative supporters... So people who said they identify with those parties felt that their party was becoming more extreme, less representative of themselves and their values. And it was every year representing them less and less and less. So those parties are becoming smaller in the size of their tent because I think social media has given the opportunity for parties that no longer have a compelling ideological or policy message to go online, get people all worked up and excited, get people clicking and engaging and retweeting things. And that ends up being a replacement for genuine grassroots politics that used to be the way the liberals and conservatives actually built up their strength across the country. So you've got the, the old parties who have become a bit, quite a lot narrower and are becoming increasingly narrow because if you depend on social media, you're, as we've seen with everything to do with our species experience with social media the last 10 or 15 years, it's just making us more and more extreme and more and more crazy. So having something that explicitly says we are not going to do politics that way and not going to follow social media as uh, uh, and click generation as being the core of our political project, that alone makes Canada's future a different sort of party. But the big difference for me is that those two parties as well, the Liberals and Tories, are based on this totally sterile, out-of-date idea of the, the left and the right. There is no one. You, you're going to find a hard time finding someone who believes that government should do nothing at all. Yeah, I don't think... Even the the most hardcore folks around your premier in uh, in Alberta are going to be saying that you know, we should just shut down the government except for everything except for paving the roads and making sure the police are paid. On the other side, fortunately, we also have very few people now who think the government should run everything. So what we're saying is that, look, we've got 100 years plus now of evidence in Canada and other advanced countries around the world of evidence of what government can do, what it can't do. And we want to have evidence as our ideological base. If it's clear that something works, do it, fix it. If it's not working properly, add to it if you need to. If it's not working, if you can't show that the evidence would support government being involved in running a program, then stop it. Save the money, either give it back to people in tax cuts or use it in something else that government could actually make people's lives, lives better, make them richer, increase their opportunities. So we're looking at a party that's very much trying to break the mold because we are 
not centrist in terms of being this wishy-washy middle in between left and right. When we say center, we mean the hard, pointy end of the arrow that's going to be in the middle, driving the country forward to try and actually confront some of these challenges that the other parties are totally ignoring. AI, social media, we just talked about. Uh, we've talked about a bit about defense issues, international affairs, trade. There's a long list of huge crises that the country is really being just kind of sleepwalking towards. And I think that it's the responsibility of politicians to say difficult things to Canadians, not to just try to suck up to people and uh, get as many clicks as you can. And I think there's been a real absence of that sort of courage and vision. I don't, uh, when I talk to Liberals and Tories, including friends who are Liberal and Tory MPs, they can't really describe what their party's vision for Canada in 10, 15 years is. We've got to have that sort of aspirational politics again, where we can again say, Canada isn't broken. Canadians are incredible people. We can do anything we want. We can solve climate change. We can deal with the immigration and housing crisis. And we're going to have very specific plans that, that we'll share with people and ask for feedback on it. Because in a democracy, everyone should have the right to have a, as much of a say as possible in the way that their policies are decided. And we want to try and make a party that's also quite different in the way it's organized to allow for more grassroots involvement in, uh, in the policy process and other areas of managing the party. So mm-hmm. a party that's strong and disciplined, that's, you know, we don't want to have some sort of wishy-washy hugging session here. This has got to be disciplined, extremely results-oriented, and extremely honest. And that means saying that when we screw up, just saying, we're sorry, we would, we'll try not to do that again. Because I think that's the only way you can also show Canadians that people who are elected to public life are just like you, me, and everyone else. We're just you know, folks trying to trying to do a job. Sometimes you do it well, sometimes you screw up. And the best way to make sure you don't make mistakes in the future isn't a glitzy communications campaign to either cover it up or distract attention. It's to be open and honest, admit it, talk about what went wrong, and try something different. Yeah. And I hope that if one party tries to do that, maybe it will have a positive influence on the others. Who can tell? Mm-hmm. Well, there is that. I mean, you know, you talk about the challenges we face as a country. I think right now you alluded to with the housing crisis, but, you know, the overall issue of affordability. Inflation remains a, a problem now. We've got, a, on top of that, a, a slowing economy. I think, you know, Canadians are concerned about, you know, the short-term economic prospects of the country, how we address all of this. Do you feel that the, the two main parties aren't really addressing the heart of the issue? Not at all. I mean, with, I mean let's take one example that ties into uh, a number of different policy areas. Right now, our immigration stream is bringing in high-qualified people from around the world. They arrive in Canada, doctors, nurses, and they can't practice. That is absolutely ridiculous. So we end up by taking the highest-skilled people from around the world and turning them into taxi drivers. So we need to have some, a program where the federal government has the courage to take on the medical establishment and say, there is going to be a pathway for foreign qualified professionals to be able to get into Canadian hospitals. And obviously you have to work with the provinces on that, but the federal government can play a really key role in coordinating this so that we can actually fix our healthcare crisis. Because we, we can't magically breed doctors and nurses and facilities. Canadians aren't having enough kids on their own. So that's the only way we're going to be able to handle that. But right now, how do we get those doctors here if there's nowhere for them to live? What sort of social disruption is it going to cause if people who are already in Canada feel that new arrivals are taking jobs and opportunities from them? houses from them. So there, we're going to need to be able to build the houses, which is going to, again, require immigrants to build the houses, because we don't have enough Canadians to do it. We're going to need to be able to bring in skilled tradespeople. Right now, the federal government makes it incredibly difficult for skilled tradespeople to come into Canada. So we need to be able to open up those sort of streams of immigration. But that also means, which the, so the Tories don't like talking about immigration, the Liberals don't like talking about this part. If you're going to have a huge amount of immigration, which we're going to need, that means a conversation about what 
Canada is as a country. What are our values? What does it mean to be Canadian? Mm -hmm. Because if we just become a country where everyone from around the world can come and be as they were elsewhere, especially in a world where living online more and more, you can stay connected to people who share your interests, whether professional, recreational, sports, or your home country. And we're really going to miss the opportunity to build a stronger country able to really confront the 21st century's big challenges. So liberals don't like talking about that. So the issue gets ignored. The conservatives don't like talking about how many millions of people we're going to need to bring in to build the houses and then fill the hospitals. So they don't talk about that. So we have this collusion of silence in the old school establishment parties where they just avoid these big issues that are going to knock our country on back onto its ass if we don't start to take them seriously. And we've got a few years to do this especially in the context of a world that is both being affected by climate change. I don't care whether people think it was caused by human activity or not, but there are vast areas of the planet that are moving from being habitable to uninhabitable, and we better figure out how to fix it. So in Canada, my, our solution on that is let's build up our nuclear capacity. That's a way we can not just reduce our emissions, we can help other countries reduce theirs using Canadian expertise. The going green doesn't have to mean going back to you know, living in the trees and wearing woolly sweaters like the, some folks in the Green Party seem to think it should. It should be about making life better and easier for people with new technology, the same way moving from a horse and buggy economy to an uh, internal combustion engine economy 100 plus years ago made all the world of difference for making life better for millions and millions of people around the world. So just looking out a few more years than the next election cycle, having a vision that's about talking to Canadians about what we think could work, what wouldn't work, rather than just trying to bluntly suck up to them to get clicks on uh, Facebook. Well, Dominic, we'll leave it there for now. Much more at ourcanadianfuture.ca. The launch was today. Look forward to chatting again down the road, but uh, certainly appreciate you making some time for us here. Really appreciate the chance to chat. Take care. All the best to you as well. There you go. That's uh, Dominic Cardi, the uh, interim leader of this uh, new party. Uh, the Canadian Future Party, more at ourcanadianfuture.ca. As mentioned, kind of born from this movement that was originally the center-right conservatives. It was Rick Peterson, actually. You might recall Rick had run for the conservative leadership and then started the center-right conservatives movement. That became center-right Canadians. Now it's become this new centrist political party. So there, there's a lot here. I mean, look, I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to the, uh, the, the notion or the feeling uh, of being politically homeless or sort of being caught in between the two parties. But uh, is, is this kind of uh, a movement that will go anywhere? You've got the pragmatic concerns. Like you've got a lot of uh, conservatives who, who are really focused on stopping the liberals, getting the liberals out of there. You've got a lot of liberals who are really focused on, you know, preventing Pierre Paulia from becoming prime minister. I think they're going to see a new political party as either wasting a vote or, or splitting their vote and ensuring that the outcome they're trying to prevent actually happens. So that's going to be the, you know, the practical concern in convincing people to support a new political party. But again, I mean, it's, it's a democracy after all. Whether there's two choices or 20 choices, you know, you, you get to pick. You're the voter. It's up to you. Rod Breckenridge, talk on SAM. Yeah, you know that song, uh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg by the Temptations. Uh, that from the musical, uh, sharing the story and sharing the music uh, of the Temptations. I mean, what can you say about the Temptations? You know, millions of albums sold, four number one singles in the Billboard charts, 14 R&B number one singles, three Grammys. 
including the first Motown act to win a Grammy Award. Uh, so really legendary. So great story, uh, and certainly some tragic elements to that story, uh, but some great music as well. Uh, the Broadway show, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations, has wrapped up its Broadway run and is on the road, including right here in Calgary. It kicked off last night at the Southern Jubilee Auditorium. Uh, runs through the 24th. More details at calgary.broadway.com. And much more as well on the show uh, at Ain't Too Proud Musical.com. Joining us on the line here this afternoon, one of the stars of Ain't Too Proud. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, E. Clayton Cornelius, a veteran Broadway actor, a Tony-nominated producer, Broadway investor, playing the role of Paul Williams in this show. In fact, also performed in the Broadway version of this show. Clayton, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for having me. Good to be here. Well, welcome to Calgary. I understand it was a great time last night. Heard from some folks that it was an amazing show. Uh, like I say, you've, you've been performing this for a while. So uh, tell us a bit more about you know, what it means to you to be a part of something like this, to, to share in the story of, of this band and their, their incredible music. You know, um, when I when I walked into the first rehearsal, uh, this is pre-Broadway for this show, I knew that this show was going to be special from the performers that we had um, originally on the show and just the material that we had to work with. It was just so, it was almost like a trifecta of um, a perfect storm coming together. And we knew that we had something really great and really special. And this show has, um, you know, obviously proven itself and has won Tony Awards for Best Choreography and and um, has traveled the country and now into Canada. And um, yeah. everyone is just loving it. And we, and we love performing it. I love performing it, so... What about, I mean, is it like a, a responsibility you have? But I mean, obviously, these guys set the bar and what they were able to do. And you're, you're kind of carrying on that legacy and, and presenting it in a different way to people. What does that mean to you then as, as a performer? Yeah, you know, it, we we are carrying the legacy of these guys. I mean, these are actual walking, living, breathing men who, you know, walk these streets. So, um, you know, it's not just like a character we're making up. We're actually paying homage to yeah. some some greats in, in the Motown. And, um, you know, it, it it is a responsibility that we have to do the work and we have to do the work without putting ourselves into it. You know, now that we're here in modern times, it's easy to sort of like American Idol out some of these songs. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, we, we have to stay true to what the original sound was, you know, of, of why these guys became into stardom and um it's 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 an honor every night especially with the choreography being heightened and you know we're giving you know from a to z we're we're, we're dancing from the beginning to the end of this thing and we're giving ourselves and we're telling a story that a lot of people don't know about like everyone knows about you know the successes of the temptations but we don't know all the stuff that came in between and i think what we're doing is we're filling in the blanks and when you leave the show you're going to find out all the stuff that happened and you're going to go whoa I had no idea yeah yeah I mean these guys went through a lot I mean you know there's there's certainly a tragic element to this story including the character you yeah. play uh, so as mm -hmm. as fun as all this music is right there there's there's that side of the story too yeah you know it's 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 interesting to do a show like this when you're talking about real people and real tragedies and real situations and you find out a lot about you know 
um, how success can then ruin a group, you know, um, when it comes to their personal experiences and what they go through. You know, these men went on tour and left their relationships and, and, um, and, you know, some of them, uh, you know, went into, um, you know, addictions uh and with my character being sort of like in a in a alcoholic uh addiction uh for Paul Williams you know and then having the tragedy of being found in a car uh close to uh, Motown and being shot uh, as they say he allegedly shot himself right. um so you know they all went through their own trials and tribulations um as they grew to stardom and then obviously dying off and Otis Williams being the only lone survival and to this day performing at 81 years old he has created a legacy and and um I it's it's just very interesting to all these stories and how how they came about but it's it's such an interesting um you know story for for all of them like you're going to get something out of every every any every character when you come to the show yeah and as mentioned you were part of the broadway run which which ended i guess last year and you know not only to get to do something like this but i think kind of the timing was right this hit broadway just as kind of broadway was reopening right after you know just the, you know how bizarre it was to have broadway basically shut down i think for almost two years so you know just kind of the combination of broadway's back and, and doing a show like this like what, what was that like for yeah you? yeah you know it was unfortunate that you know we we were part of 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 getting broadway on its feet and i, I can say that we were really mm -hmm. one of those uh most popular shows on broadway it's just unfortunate that you know omicron and all the different variants of this covid um you know captured the cast we shut down obviously because of of COVID initially, and then when we came back, um, the the cast just got hit again with you know another strain, and you know we went down for two weeks. But obviously, when the show goes down for two weeks, it does lose money. Um, so uh, you know uh, they thought it best to just then you know uh, close the Broadway production and focus on the tour, which obviously has been very 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 successful. And uh, the Broadway show did recoup before we closed, so that means we did you know, um, financially do well. Uh, I just wish that it was still, you know, continuing, but you know, it, it, we have a long future with the tour. So, uh, we're looking very forward to, um, go, coming to Canada again and, and, and for this week, you know, for, for people to see. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it premiered last night, runs through the 24th, uh, and then in Edmonton, September 26th through uh, October 1st. Uh, some more at calgary.broadway.com, intoproudmusical.com. Uh, already getting some texts from folks who have tickets this week, looking forward to the show, and uh, the, the reviews are incredible. Clayton, uh, congrats uh, on all of this, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you. You know, everybody come see the show. You don't want to miss it. <laughs> All the best. There you go. Take care. That's uh, E. Clayton Cornelius, a veteran Broadway actor, Tony-nominated producer, uh, Broadway investor as well. Uh, so he did the uh, Broadway version of the show in New York. They're taking it on the road. Ain't too proud. The life and times of the temptations. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he's, he's a part of this and um, quite a show from, from what I understand. So an opportunity this week to, to check that out. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.